Arts is a podcast about a bunch of interesting things, all loosely related to a topic that changes every week. Hello, and welcome to episode two of Loose Parts. I'm Kat Hale, your host, and in this episode, we're talking about plants. But not the boring kind, I'm saying some legit serious business. We'll also hear a poem and a song and learn a bunch of crazy plant facts. So let's do this. Hyacinth, golden chain, narcissus, laurel, daffodil, rhododendron, oleander, azalea, elephant ear, jasmine, rosary pea, red sage, castor bean, yew, larkspur, oak, monkshood, elderberry, lily of the valley, black locust, iris, moonseed, foxglove. These are all plants that can poison or even kill you. And when I say poison, that can range from mild irritation to chronic liver failure if ingested over a period of time or even immediately. And when I say kill, I mean some of these plants can literally make you drop dead if you eat the roots or the shoots or the leaves or the flowers or any part of the plant. But there's one plant that is the most deadly. And that's a native to the Caribbean, Florida, the Bahamas, Mexico, Central America, and Northern South America, and it's known as the manchineel tree. Manchineel trees are also known as Arbol de la Muerte, or Manzanilla de la Muerte, which in Spanish means tree of death or little apple of death. And that's because these trees have killed many people. Most notably, the Spanish explorer Ponce de Leon was killed by an arrow that was poisoned with the sap of this tree during a battle with the Calusa Indians in Florida. The sap is this thick, milky substance, and even a small amount of sap in a raindrop or dew that drips on your skin can leave a blister. If you come in contact with the sap, it can literally burn you and produce blisters that won't go away. If you burn the wood, the smoke can cause inflammation of the eyes or even temporary blindness. The fruit is edible, technically. I mean, the iguanas known as garobo can eat the fruit and live in the tree, but for humans, it can be fatal. It tastes really sweet, almost like an apple, and we know this because some very intrepid botanists have tried it. But even after a small bite, the taste in your mouth builds to a strange peppery feeling. Imagine what happens when you eat a hot pepper or jalapeno. But that builds even further to this burning, tearing sensation that produces this tightness in your throat. You can barely swallow food from the pain, and many people experience an obstruction, like a pharyngeal lump that prevents them from swallowing. So you can either die from the burning sensations and the pain and the damage that it causes to your esophagus and throat, or you die from starvation because you literally can't ingest food. The craziest thing is that these plants exist naturally everywhere across their habitat, And though they're endangered because people continue cutting them down since they are such a threat to us, you can still run into them by accident. 
People, when they find them, tend to mark them with big hazard signs like red X's or some countries paint bands around the trunk so that you know not to go near them. Because sometimes even inhaling the air around the tree can be harmful, cause a burning sensation in your lungs. But it got me thinking about all of the plants that we interact with day to day and the ones that can still pose some kind of threat to us. And what does that mean for this sort of human construct that we have about us as conquerors of nature? Have we really conquered nature? And if so, how well? And if not, what's to come? Every time I think about humans conquering nature, it makes me think of all the things that we've brought in to help us do that, to help us tame the wild. And in many cases, that involves invasive species. Some of them we brought over as pets, like starlings or pythons, or to stock our ponds, like carp. But we also brought over plants to serve as decoration, to fill our gardens, to provide shade. And the most notorious one, in my life at least, has been kudzu. Kudzu is a plant that's actually native to Asia and was brought to the U.S. in the 1870s or thereabouts and widely lauded as one of the best ornamental shade plants because it was fast growing and didn't require a lot of maintenance and really just took to whatever kind of trellis you built for it. In fact, in 1883 at the New Orleans Exposition, the kudzu was introduced to the southeastern United States where it has profligated up to this day. Now, I'm a native southerner and I can tell you I have driven down many a highway and looked in many a backyard and in fact behind many an office park where the entire landscape has been completely blanketed in this vine that turns everything into a sort of rolling marshmallow of green leaves. You can't see any structures underneath it because it completely takes them over. Kudzu grows at a rate of about 2,500 acres a year. Each plant can grow about one foot a day, which is insane. It's a structural parasite that kills and damages other plants because it can't actually support itself, so it just takes over every structure around it. So it smothers plants, it encompasses entire tree trunks, it can break branches or even uproot entire trees with the weight of all of its vines. It forms a symbiotic relationship with nitrogen-fixing bacteria, which is how it actually profligates so much. And it also contributes to atmospheric nitrogen. So get this, there was a study done. Kudzu had actually increased the atmospheric nitrogen oxides in the eastern U.S. by two parts per billion in the tropospheric ozone, meaning that this plant affected our ozone layer. A plant. The ozone layer. I mean, it's crazy. There are some pleasant things about kudzu other than its slow takeover of our entire human existence. The flowers are pretty and purple and they smell like grapes. Bees during drought often harvest from the kudzu flower because kudzu grows even in drought. It doesn't require a lot of water. And when the bees make honey from kudzu, the honey takes on a sort of light purplish hue and is a little bit thinner. It actually tastes like grape jelly or bubblegum. So imagine bubblegum honey. That sounds fun. The problem is that kudzu is really hard to kill and remove. If you leave even one tiny part of the root structure, it will start growing again 
and eventually get up to that rate of a foot a day. So you see a lot of cars that were left in a field or old abandoned tobacco barns or houses that have been completely covered with this stuff. It's become a real problem for farmers because it tends to just completely take over fields, especially things like corn, which grows very tall, and kudzu likes that, so it tries to climb the corn and then just takes all the corn completely down. Now, kudzu has been put forward as an alternative energy source. We can burn it for fuel. We can also feed livestock on it because it is, in fact, edible. But it's the slow grasping takeover of all of our structures that really fascinates me about kudzu. If you didn't have a groundskeeper keeping it back to the tree line, it would literally take over your building and possibly tear it completely down. Let's take a break. And for this part, instead of listening to my voice, Let's listen to someone else's voice, reading a poem. A Poison Tree by William Blake I was angry with my friend. I told my wrath, my wrath did end. I was angry with my foe. I told it not, my wrath did grow. And I watered it in fears, night and morning with my tears. And I sunned it with smiles and with soft, deceitful wiles. And it grew both day and night, till it bore an apple bright. And my foe beheld it shine, and he knew that it was mine. And into my garden stole, when the night had veiled the pole. In the morning, glad I see, my foe outstretched beneath the tree. That was beautiful. Okay. Back to the show. In 1878, a German explorer named Karl Liche and his companion Hendrik went with a party of Makoto tribes people exploring through the island. Now, at one point, they came upon this crazy looking plant, like a giant pineapple. And the top of it had these long tendrils and tentacles that were, and I quote, constantly and vigorously in motion with a subtle sinuous silent throbbing against the air. Now they were very wary of this plant because it looked super weird, but at one point the tribes people they were with singled out one of their own and forced them at javelin point to climb the plant. She drank the fluid that was sort of pooled in the middle of it, and then Leecher writes, The atrocious cannibal tree that had been so inert and dead came to sudden savage life. The slender, delicate palpi, with the fury of starved serpents, quivered a moment over her head, then, as if an instinct with demonic intelligence fastened upon her in sudden coils round and round her neck and arms, then, while her awful screams and yet more awful laughter rose wildly to be instantly strangled down again into a gurgling moan, the tendrils, one after another, like great green serpents with brutal energy and infernal rapidity, rose, retracted themselves, and wrapped her about in fold after fold, 
ever-tightening with cruel swiftness and savage tenacity of anacondas fastening upon their prey. Oh my god, you guys, she totally got eaten by that tree. That all sounds really exciting, but I do have to tell you that in the 1950s, the science writer Willie Lay fully debunked this story. There was no giant carnivorous pineapple plant. In fact, there may not have even been a Makoto tribe in Madagascar, and the German explorer Karl Leitch doesn't even exist. But it does explain our fascination with carnivorous plants. Plants that eat people. Now, there aren't actually any plants that eat people, but there are plants that eat animals, and we're really fascinated by them. So the entire family of carnivorous plants, they can eat everything from insects to spiders, crustaceans, little tiny soil and water living creatures. They can even eat lizards and mice, rats, voles, shrews, tiny vertebrates, little rodents that live in the forest, you know? Carnivorous plants trap their prey in a bunch of ways. There are pitcher plants that use pitfall traps, so they're sort of funnel-shaped with like a big bell, and there's a pool of digestive enzymes at the bottom. So bugs fall in and they slip down the sides and land in this pool that basically eats them. There are flypaper traps, so plants that have sticky insides that smell really nice, so when bugs come they just stick to them and then the plant slowly digests them. There are snap traps, like Venus flytraps, those rapid leaf movements that just instantly trap a bug or small creature in there. There are bladder traps or suction traps that actually can suck in a prey in an internal vacuum. And then there are lobster pots or eel traps, which are exactly how they are used by human fishermen, which is uh, they force the prey towards an internal digestive organ because they have inward-pointing hairs. Um, they're not dangerous to people, really. I mean, if you laid down in a bed of Venus flytraps and so on, you would crush them and ruin them. They wouldn't take tiny bites out of you. But they do appear in our pop culture and literature quite a bit. Most notably, Little Shop of Horrors, Audrey 2, love that movie, and musical, and story, all of it. And another one of my favorite sort of random sci-fi things, John Wyndham's The Day of the Triffids, which if you haven't read, I highly, highly recommend. It's just a great piece of pulp fiction. I don't live in fear that a bunch of plants are going to rise up and eat me or completely take over my home in the next five minutes anyway. You know, I grow plants on my porch. I've got edible plants like tomatoes and peppers and basil and parsley and rosemary, and we have decorative plants too. Pothos do particularly well in apartments. But it is interesting to think that the next time you walk through a garden or look at a particularly strange or interesting flower, the plants do have a sort of hidden life and perhaps ulterior motives of their own that we aren't privy to. There's a secret life of plants going on that I find really fascinating, and it also inspires this sort of fascination with the natural world. So the next time you're traipsing through someone's garden, or adventuring in the jungle, or walking through the Everglades, or wading through a marsh, be careful. Because you never know what may be growing right behind you. Dun-dun-dun! <laughs>
thank you so much for listening to Loose Parts. I hope you enjoyed our journey into plants today and all of the dangers that they hold. I'm your grateful and very thoroughly scared host, Cat Hale. Loose Parts is recorded and produced in beautiful Chicago, Illinois, where we have a brand new Ferris wheel with air-conditioned cars. You can listen to Loose Parts at loose.parts. You can also check it out on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash looseparts or subscribe on iTunes. Just search for Loose Parts. And please feel free to leave us a review. It really helps us out. Also email us at looseparts_podcast at gmail.com if you have any thoughts to share or ideas for things you'd like to hear about on future episodes. Special thanks to Emily Heron for designing our logo and Sean Brown for reading our poem. And now, just because it seems so appropriate and I can't help it, this is a song called Kudzu by Baker and Abel. Frosty glass of lemonade, a rocking chair out in the shade. These are things that make me think of you. Chickens don't eat chicken, and a lizard don't eat a lizard. Why the heck do people eat people? Yes, they do. On the farm where love abounds, kudzu hangs straight to the ground, taking trees in their mossy Put dust on crops. Crop circle, put circle on crop. Alien with the Maori face tattoos. If, if your name is Baker and Abel, you got the view from the operating table. Please, Mr. Alien, don't you leave a scar. Find yourself a long way from